have some really good news, though. We're ready, to, we're ready to move on. The good news is that it is, once again, political campaign season. Yes, who's excited about that? I brought a picture of some of the uh, principal figures here for you. You're going to have to get used to seeing some of these faces. Couldn't roll to the next one. How about those, huh? That's good stuff. Man, I wish I was an artist. I wish I could draw things like that. So here's where we're at in the story, okay? 31 weeks covering the overarching narrative of the Bible. Last week, we ended the Old Testament. We, we came to the end of it, and the New Testament begins in a very politically charged season in the nation of Israel. It begins with the birth of a king. That's how it starts. Uh, we sometimes refer to that as the Christmas story. Uh, most of you are familiar with it. In fact, most anyone who's been in America for, you know, more than like the last three months has heard of this Christmas story. Well, at the time that it happens, that Jesus is born, uh, Israel has become a much more political society than it ever was before. Because what's happened in the last 400 years before this is that God has stopped speaking through the prophets. God has been silent for 400 years. And so the religious leaders have sort of filled in the gap, speaking of the gap, uh, the vacuum that was left now that God's not speaking through the prophets, and the religious leaders have become now also political leaders. And they are a very, very rules-driven society. Uh, you know, your, your public persona, your outward behavior is everything in this society. And so what's happened is the people who don't measure up to the, the sort of rules-based persona, they've become now the down-and-outers of their society. Uh, they have become the people who are uh, less than. They're at the bottom of the social totem pole. Now, uh, I think in America, I don't know about you, but at the last, during the last like, presidential campaign season, I reached a point of like, political fatigue where it's just like I just couldn't hear it. Like, it I, the noise was all still there, but it was like I just couldn't hear it anymore. Did anybody else, anybody else feel that way? It's just like, yeah, I just can't. I just can't anymore. The crazy thing is like, I'm, you know, I'm sort of politically interested, but it was just like, it was just so much chaos. I just reached the point of just fatigue. And in our society, we can turn the TV off, as if any of you had a TV with a knob on it anymore to turn off like that. Uh, uh, just as a total aside, I was just thinking uh, earlier about back in the day, like when I was a kid, and you know, you did have the, and my dad would be like, hey, get up and turn to channel five, and I'd have to get up and do that. Anybody else have a dad that, yeah, you were the remote control then. Uh, so my dad was an early adopter. He was sort of an innovator, though. He had a remote control before they were a thing. Uh, we can turn off the noise, thankfully. We still have that option. At the bare minimum, we can at least get in our car and turn off the radio and turn off the podcast and have a little bit of silence. But at this point in the Jewish nation, the political leaders were in every area of their life. Okay, so let me help you envision what that would be like, Owen. Imagine if this group of people were following you around everywhere you went and telling you everything that you could and couldn't do, literally even what you could eat. That would be rough, right? That would be a miserable experience. Uh, which one of those would you like to be your personal liaison? Uh, which one would you take? Oh, okay. Okay, all, okay, well, you can take all of them if you want, but the rest of us would be glad to give them over. But the political leaders are dictating every area of their life, so I just, wanna, I just want to get your, your head on that, around that. So adding to the political climate, something else really significant happened in this 400 years uh, of silence between the end of the prophets and the birth of Jesus. 
the Roman Empire has risen to power. Uh, if you've never studied anything uh, about Rome, it's fascinating. The world has never seen before or since anything like the Roman Empire. They basically ruled the known world for somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1,200 years. And uh, just, just this amazing machine really took over the entire known world. And so uh, what would happen is they would just go in and occupy a country. So the nation of Israel, it still exists, but it's now inside the confines of the Roman Empire. And the Romans were enamored with their political system. So there's like a new layer over the top of, of politics and governance uh, over their lives. The Romans literally think that their Caesar, which is a word that means king, uh, is actually God. Specifically, he is the human representative of all of the other mythological Greek gods that they, that they worship. And so, in the Roman Empire, the word of the king is divine. It's in stone. No one argues with the king. He's a hero. He's a celebrity. He's everyone's authority. So, the Jews, they end up with all kinds of political leaders, right? They got their local religious leaders telling them what they do, but their local religious leaders are under the thumb of Rome. There's Roman soldiers up and down the streets of their community, uh, and they were looking for in this political climate, they were looking for a political hero to be the Savior, to be the Messiah. They were looking for a new king who would come in and change things. All of their hopes are resting on this coming Savior that the prophets talked about, and they're anticipating a king. Not just a king, they're looking for their king. And in chapter 22, the king is born, the Christmas story. Christmas story is one very complex, you know, it's weird, it would be weird to talk about it right now, so we're not going to go to the Christmas story, but just, I'll just conjure up a few images for you. You know some Christmas songs, right, Will? Like, Away in a Manger, The Little Lord Jesus, No Crying He Makes, uh, Silent Night, right, just these images of serenity. Uh, many of you have had children. I'm guessing your experience was totally dissimilar to No Crying He Makes and Silent Night. Uh, we have these images of serenity, but then, on the other hand, if you think about the experience of Mary and Joseph and what that night was like for them, being out in the cold and having a baby, you know, outdoors, basically, uh, or the experience of the shepherds. The shepherds are out in their fields. They're these nomadic people. And then in the middle of the night, boom, the angels light the sky and start talking to them. And it says that they were terrified. No kidding. There's no silent night happening for this particular group of people, right? And then in our experience, you add another layer of that. Like you go to the mall and you see the carnage. You watch the news on Black Friday and people are getting roughed up all over the place. And uh, we have like all these mixed messages about Christmas. And pretty soon it's like, okay, what is this Christmas story all about? Well, here's a clue. It says Christ in the name. And this is what it says in Matthew chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 2. It says that the... It says, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi, or wise men is what we would often refer to them, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. They come, the wise men from foreign land, they come and they ask for the king of the Jews. Turns out that color doesn't show up very good on that background. But Christmas isn't about a baby. Christmas is about the king, is my point. They came looking for the king. It's not about the birth of a king whose kingdom 
uh, is going to come and overthrow the Romans and take over the country. It's about a king whose kingdom has no politics. It has no red tape. It has just a king who is true and just and righteous and kind forever. His kingdom knows no end. So this time there's some really funny things happening. Uh, funny to us, I guess. Probably not that, that funny to them. At this point in time, the Roman Empire was under the rule of a Caesar. Does anyone know his name? Which particular Caesar it was? Augustus. You were quick on the draw, Sandy. Yeah, Caesar means king. His name is Augustus, so it's King Augustus. And he was a national hero to them because he had just conquered so much territory, defeated so many enemies. He had numerous military victories. And so he was like as much of a legend as anything. And what would happen is that whenever a word about Augustus would go out, whenever a story would be told or a message would be delivered about him, it was called, the Greek word they would use was evangelion, which is where we get our word gospel. It means literally good news. There was an encryption found on, uh, in, uh, by archaeologists in a city called Pergamum. Uh, it's in the Bible. It doesn't exist anymore, but it refers to Augustus as the emperor Caesar the king, son of God, Augustus, ruler of all land and sea. That was the title that they gave to their political leader. Can you imagine giving that title to one of these people? Which one of these would we like to be the son of God, ruler of all land and sea? Uh, that's, that's quite a thought uh, to think about. Uh, so here's what developed. Okay, this, is, this is the important part, why I'm making such a big point about Caesar. What developed was what was called, we refer to it as imperial theology, or specifically Roman imperial theology. If you just make, connect the dots, it's Roman, uh, the emperor theology, the study of God. And basically, this is what it looked like. Caesar is God. Rome is his righteous, eternal kingdom. And therefore, we should go out and conquer and steal and destroy because of Caesar's command, because he is righteous and our kingdom is righteous and his cause is righteous. And they would spread propaganda by uh, putting the king's image on coins and flags and they would have statues of him everywhere and they would put inscriptions about Caesar on buildings and monuments and they would write songs and poems about him. And then they would go out and conquer because this is our righteous cause. Bottom line was, no one opposes the king. No one opposes Caesar. And so what Caesar would do, of course their empire is vast, uh, is he would appoint proxy kings in a region. Like maybe if they conquered Spokane County, he would set up a, a king to sort of monitor this because Caesar couldn't be everywhere. And so uh, in the place uh, where Bethlehem was, in this particular region, uh, the king's name, the proxy king's name was Herod. He was appointed by Caesar. So imagine his thought when these foreign kings show up and they say, hey, where's the king? We're looking for the king. Well, don't we already have a king who is God? Don't we already have Augustus Caesar? And we also have this proxy king appointed by Caesar? If you study Herod, you'll find out that he was actually a very cruel tyrant. It's said that he actually uh, held some captives, uh, just kept them imprisoned until the day he died uh, because he knew no one was going to mourn for him. And so they were to be executed on the day he died so that there would be mourning. Uh, he was that cruel of a tyrant. So if you're a Jew living under these circumstances, you've got to be asking, where's the Savior? Where's the king that you're going to send, God, to save us, that you promised through all these prophets? And then after 400 years, these three foreign kings show up and they say, hey, where's the king? 
Where's the, the king? Where is he? Now, if it's true that Jesus really is the king, if that's true, that's going to change a lot of things for a lot of people, isn't it? If he really is the eternal king, one person who was alive, who was there, that had his life completely transformed when he realized that Jesus was the king, was the Apostle Paul. And I just want to read to you the first few sentences of his letter to the Christians at Rome, uh, beginning with Rome, Romans 1.1. 1, 1. He identifies himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That's who's writing. He self-identifies. Set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures about his son. His son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of King David, he was a king, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how Paul identifies himself as a servant of the king, a servant of Christ. And he's come to this realization that Jesus is the Son of God, and it has totally changed the way he lives his life. He's totally captivated by it. But he's also pointing out the fact that he didn't arrive at this conclusion on a whim. He arrived at this conclusion because in light of the many prophecies about Jesus, he simply can't deny it. There's over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament about the coming king, about the Messiah who would come. And over the course of thousands of years, about 330 prophecies were made about the Savior. Tim Sutherland, a pastor that I listen to, he, um, he says that these are like identifiers. Uh, so let me make an example for you. Uh, if there was uh, five prophecies about you, I could narrow it down to, just by knowing these five identifiers, I could narrow it down to you and no one else on the planet. So uh, just as an example, if I knew your full name, okay, well, there could be someone else with your full name. Uh, if I knew your street number, well, theoretically, there could be someone else who has your same full name and lives in a house that's at the same street number as you do somewhere else. Uh, if I knew the street name to go with it, well, there could theoretically be someone with the same name, the same number, who lived on the same street in some other city. So I probably need to know the name of the city that you live in. And by the way, there's more than one Spokane in the United States, so I'd have to know the state. But if I knew those five things about you, I couldn't possibly be talking about anyone else on the planet, right? Just, just those five identifiers. Well, Paul is looking at over 300 of them and saying, there is no way this could be talking about anybody else. And so he's identifying, uh, I didn't just arrive at this conclusion on a whim, I arrived at this conclusion because there's no way it could be talking about anybody else. Now, uh, there's a, I'm about to tell you the name of a professor, and I feel like we should just get the chuckling out of the way first, because this is his real name. His name is Dr. Peter Stoner. I know, right? Who's going to cite a guy named Dr. Peter Stoner? Uh, if you look him up and you see him, you're going to realize immediately, that guy's really smart. Like, even if he's not wearing a lab coat, uh, you're just going to, okay, that guy knows some stuff. So he was a professor of mathematics and astronomy. Okay. Uh, so he did this really, really fascinating study about eight prophecies of Jesus, uh, just eight of the 300, uh, that specifically, specifically, pertain to uh, the birth of Christ. Okay? All the prophecies pertain to his infancy, his childhood, his birth. Uh, 
And uh, so I'm just going to rattle them off to you really, really quick. Uh, I'll tell you the addresses if, you're, if you want to write them down or you can get them from me later. But the first one is that the king would be a descendant of Abraham, Genesis 22, fulfilled in Matthew 1.1. Number two, the king would be a descendant of David, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. We just read that one. Uh, number three, the king will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, fulfilled in Luke 2, 4 through 7. Number four, the king will be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, fulfilled in Matthew 1.18. Number five, the king will be honored with gifts by foreign kings, Psalm 72.10, Matthew 2.11. The king will be worshipped by the nomads, the shepherds, Psalm 72, uh, fulfilled in Luke 2.9. The king would enter the temple, Malachi 3.1, fulfilled in Luke 2.25. And number eight, that the king would flee to and return from Egypt, Hosea 11.1, fulfilled in Matthew 2.13-14. Okay, there's eight. I just went right through those. I know you soaked that all up. Uh, That's just good stuff. Feeding your soul right there. Uh, I suggest reading the book of Isaiah if you're interested in that. This is, this is some stuff that you're going to find really, really fascinating. Now, he did this study based on all the factors involved. You can Google him. The study is pretty easy to find, actually. Uh, and he found that the probability of one person being able to fulfill just these eight prophecies <laughs> is pretty fascinating stuff. He picked these eight because they couldn't be self-fulfilled. He found that the probability of someone being able to fulfill these eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I'm not a mathematician, uh, but I remember just enough to know that that number is a one with 18 zeros after it. That's pretty unbelievable. Now, that's just eight of these prophecies, let alone the other 300 plus. Are you with me? Peter Stone is really nerdy, um, but that just gives me an idea. When Paul says, I didn't like randomly decide that Jesus is the king, he's saying, when I look at the prophecies, I can't deny he is the king. I can't deny it. Now, I love what Tim Sutherland goes on to say about this, because although the mathematics is is just phenomenally interesting, he says the question really for us isn't whether or not Jesus is the king. The question really is, is he your king? Is he he really your king? Because for me, it's pretty easy to just kind of go through life uh, and really opt for just enough of Jesus in my life to make me feel better than the person next to me. Uh, hopefully you never do that. I think most of us do in different circumstances. Uh, or we kind of go through life kind of wanting Jesus to be our Savior because I want to go to heaven when I die, but I don't want him to like be my Lord. Like, I don't want him to tell me what to do. I don't want him to define the purpose of my life. I want to define the purpose of my life. There was a, a pastor named uh, Wilbur Reese. In 1971, he wrote this poem. Uh, some of you may have heard it. Uh, in fact, I may have even quoted from it before. Uh, it's called $3 Worth of God. And he says in it that basically what we want typically is just enough of God uh, to not disturb our sleep, but to just help us sleep. He says to equal a cup of warm milk. We want $3 worth of God in a paper sack. And what happens is uh, we tend to start feeling really guilty sometimes about not being committed enough. I'm not vested enough. I'm not doing enough. But I think we actually have that completely backward. I think, we, I think we misunderstand it. We feel guilty because we're not doing enough, and I feel guilty because I'm not living like Jesus is my king. But here's what we have to remember. We have to remember that Jesus is not your king because of what you do for him. He's your king because of what he's done for you. He's not your king because of what you do for him. He's your king because of what he's already done for you. Being the king, that's his job. My job is just to respond to the king. By the grace of God, just to respond to what he's already done 
for me. If he's the king, it changes everything about my life because I live in his kingdom. He doesn't live in mine. Make sense? He's not the king because of anything I do. He's the king because of what he's already done. If he's the king, I have a new purpose to take his gospel into the world. Mark 16, 5. To let my light shine before others so that they'll glorify him. Matthew 5, 16. To be a witness to the king. This is, this is now my purpose. And so I don't know where you're at personally. Um, you know, there's so much just chaos and just strangeness happening in the world around us right now. Um, like even outside of just the normal difficulties of life. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what burdens you're carrying right now. I don't know what you're stressed out about. I don't know what you're bummed out about. I don't know what you're worried about. I don't know what's getting your energy and your attention. But what I do know is that you have a king. I do know that you have a king. And I know that the cares of the world, uh, you, you get it. Like they're a weight sometimes. They pull on us. They distract us. They, they, they kind of dictate our actions sometimes. Uh, they manipulate our emotions sometimes. And that's real. The cares of life are a real thing that pull on you. But what I do know is that they can't pull on the king. They can't handle the king. Satan will use those things to discourage you. He'll use sin, especially like the habitual kind that you just want to get out from under the weight of. He'll use those things to to handle you, but he can't handle the king. He'll use insecurity to push you around, uh, to get you to act fearfully, but he can't push the king around. And so for us, the important thing to do is just to lean into the fact that we have a king. The king is fully in control. And for all the things that have preoccupied my attention and your attention and left us focused on our temporary troubles, he's the king over those things too. So this is what I would love for us to do. I'm going to actually ask the, the band to come. Uh, we're just going to, we're going to worship here for a few minutes. Um, You know, we don't talk about Satan pushing on us and, and pulling on us very often because it just sounds weird, because it just sounds strange, and we don't like the idea. But if it's reasonable to believe in God, it's reasonable to believe that there's also an enemy of your soul. Uh, and I think most of us have, I think all of us have felt the weight of it, whether we acknowledge it as that or not. And I just want to remind you that he can't handle the king. He's already been defeated by your king. And sometimes I think we just need to look our fears and our anxiety in the face and just say, you know what? You can't handle the king. You can't deal with this. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to just stand with me. Uh, I'm going to pray, and we're going to actually celebrate communion as uh, the band leads us here today. Um, so I want to encourage you to just grab this little guy right here off your seat. And um, I want to encourage you to just close your eyes where you're at right now and just call to mind your fear, your grief, your insecurity, the situation that has you frustrated? What's your area of vulnerability? And I just want you to remind that situation, I want you to remind Satan that you can't handle the king. You can push on me, you can bait me, and you know what, sometimes I'm foolish enough to bite on it, but you can't handle my king. He's already won. He's already taken care of me. Yes, tomorrow's going to come, and he's already there. He already knows what I'm going to need tomorrow. He already knows what I'm going to need a year from now. He already knows what I'm going to need in eternity, and he's already made provision for it. So just know that whatever's pulling on you, 
it can't handle the king. It's not going to upset Jesus. It's not going to throw him off. He's not going to be confused by it. He's not going to be in a spot where he just doesn't know what to do. He's got you covered. And so today, we're going to observe communion. Jesus took the bread and he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. He's going to go to the cross and he's going to pay for their sins so that they could be friends of God again, so that they could be alive to God. And he took the cup and he said, this is a covenant in blood. I'm making peace between you and God, and it can't be undone because it's, it's a covenant that's written in blood. It is a blood covenant. The king's not going to abandon us. The covenant is sealed. And so, Lord, thank you that you have us accounted for, that we don't have to live in anxiety. We don't have to have the same fears and worries that uh, the people around us might have, but you have us covered and taken care of. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you went to the cross and that you defeated death for us in Jesus' name.